Well, howdy, neighbor. It's health and happiness time. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. Thank you there, Brother Bill. That was very interesting. And friends, all I want to tell you is all about the Good Neighbor Get-Together. Howdy, folks, and welcome to the Good Neighbor Get-Together. Come on in and make you seven at home. We're family here. So pull up a chair to the table and listen in as we serve up some good old country music and southern hospitality with all the fixings. And don't forget to pass the biscuits. This is the Good Neighbor Get Together. Hey everybody, this is part two of our interview with Dr. Ted Olson on the Bristol Sessions. Enjoy. You did a good job separating sort of fact from fiction. Um, I forgot where in your corpus I read this, but you had mentioned like, you know, the way even Ralph Peer, the sort of the guy who set this all up, um, he just hyped it so hard. He's like, oh yeah, like he, the Carter family came with no shoes. They were barefoot, you know, eating like possum soup and stuff like that. And then, but you made clear like, no, he actually came with $60,000 worth of equipment you see, like you had mentioned, I think you had um, Stoneman like sort of prep, prepare the way. And a bunch of these people were actually sort of already somewhat, well, not a bunch, but some of them were already sort of professional, you know, musicians or whatever. And it was planned. And I think you even mentioned there was like, um, I almost said emailing, but there was like correspondence between Pierre and, and AP Carter beforehand, which, which I think that's what I read. And if that's so, that sort of blew my mind. But my question for you is, it's a little bit specific. Um, like in modern country, we got like bro country, pop country, neo-traditional, you know, we still got bluegrass kind of still holding strong. Um, what sort of just in the in the 20s, you know, Bristol, Johnson, all, um, you know, Asheville, all these all, all these sort of places where these sessions what sort of genres of country music do we have there? Sure. No, that's a good question. Uh, the simple answer is many different genres were, and I can't even say they were pioneered at Bristol because they predated Bristol, but Bristol was an encapsulation of strong artists working in a number of different genres, which at the time weren't necessarily identified as separate genres, but we've come to see them as separate genres in retrospect. Mm. So by that, I mean, you know, uh, you know, African-American music was represented in, in, in Bristol in the form of harmonica blues. that's there and of course the carter family um recorded uh, a, you know a couple of you know ballads um songs that tell a story
Um, and so uh, that genre is represented there in a few instances, balladry and, um, you know, banjo music, which would be, you know, kind of a, a reduced, kind of instrumentally reduced soundscape from the larger string band soundscape, which was so popular in, across Appalachia in the 20s. So there was solo banjo players in Bristol, um, which, uh, you know, would kind of presage uh, some of the banjo music that became popular when bluegrass became popular 20 years later. Um, so those are three examples. There are gospel songs in Bristol that uh, kind of led to the expectation of uh, people within the Southern gospel genre as it emerged very shortly thereafter. Um, it, it was certainly heard at Bristol. Um, there was holiness music, which was religious music um, from the Pentecostal Holiness Church or, or a particular denominational you know, response to Pentecostalism. That was definitely represented at Bristol. Um, so th those are some examples of the styles of music represented at the Bristol sessions. And if one were to extend it and talk about the Johnson City sessions one year, one year later, one could say all those genres and maybe a couple more were represented at Johnson City. So I think one way to go about it is the location recording sessions in Appalachia, Bristol, Johnson City, and there was one even one year later in Knoxville were, you know, um, amalgams of, or, or, you know, I think almost of a, gumbo, you know, soup or something is kind of a, a hodgepodge of different styles performed by people who love that music um, long before those styles had been necessarily labeled as being somehow distinctive and constituting their own genre. So I sometimes say that the template for Americana music today would be one of these location recording sessions in Appalachia because the catch-all large tent philosophy of Americana music was very much what uh, Ralph Peer in Bristol or Frank Walker in Johnson City were looking for. They weren't trying to be restrictive as far as what they would record. They simply wanted compelling performances that would sell, you know, in terms of selling as discs, you know, commercially. And and they wouldn't have at the time they wouldn't have given it a genre other than maybe hillbilly. Would they have called it hillbilly? There were two large genres that were designated in the mid 1920s by the recorded sound industry. And that was determined. Uh, now, when I'm talking about this, I'm talking about vernacular music. Obviously, there were commercial you know, kind of highbrow music and other types of music that were marketed separately from this. But in terms of vernacular 
um, popular music and, and, and music influenced by tradition, uh, th those companies marketed them according to uh, along racial lines. So the genres were determined based on the music it was perceived that whites would purchase and the mm -hmm. mu music that it was perceived that blacks would purchase. So the, the white music that was vernacular in the United States, much of that was marketed in catalogs marked hillbilly music. Now in the 21st century, we wince at the concept of calling you know, a genre based on a, you know, a regional stereotype. You know, it seems very offensive somehow. Um, it was offensive only to some and it wasn't offensive to others. I mean, some people at the time almost proudly suggested that was their identity marker. Now that doesn't maybe rationalize or justify using the term, but it, it just complicates the term and it explains why the term was used at the time. There's a famous example, uh, there's a band called the Hillbillies, mm -hmm. Al Hopkins and, and the Hillbillies. And, uh, you know, it was alleged that the producer asked uh, Al Hopkins what his band should be called after they appeared at uh, a session. And he said, oh, we're, we're a bunch of hillbillies from uh, northwest North Carolina, southwest Virginia, northeast Tennessee. You call us what you want, but that's who we are. He called him the hillbillies and that, mm -hmm. that kind of the name uh, brought about the genre. So. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the story behind that name. The records that were targeted toward African-American audiences, a perception that this would be music that African-Americans would purchase, um, was called race music. Um, and so it was the Jim Crow period in, in American history. And that's how the record companies were thinking. They were thinking along racially polarized perspectives. Now, the truth was whites listened to those race records and blacks listened to those hillbilly records. And that was quite common. So and they were both covering each other's songs, too. Right. Anyway. Yes, that's yeah. right. I mean, Jimmy Rogers was was recording one blues after the other, as many other white artists were doing. Um, and, and, and black artists were heavily influenced by aspects of white music that they were hearing on. Uh, white recordings, as well as learning from white neighbors. So, you know, in some ways, you might say it was a blatant um, kind of concession to the sociology of that time period. And, uh, you know, it's obviously wrongheaded from that perspective. It was also not very astute because, unfortunately, a lot of records didn't get heard because they were pigeonholed as belonging to one race and not to the mm -hmm. other. Right. So that was a real negative outcome of the of that polarized era and those highly artificial genres that were created yeah. by the record industry. But you know, if there's one thing I've learned the past year, especially like even through your podcast, Sepia Tones, like I, someone you guys were interviewing said something like, 
oh, maybe it was Bill Monroe or someone said, oh yeah, it's, it's not bluegrass, it's blues grass. And then basically when you go back to the source, Jimmy Driftwood, I think Hank Williams, seems like everyone had like a black friend who they're just learning, learning from stealing music. I think, and then you notate how AP Carter had a, a companion who was black, who was song catching with him. It's like, it's not just a one-off thing. Like this, this is the, st- this is the standard form. And you mentioned there was a harmonica player, um, a, a black harmonic player in the, uh, in the Bristol sessions and whatnot. But I mean, that, that's something that, and as a side note, I watched a Jack Daniels documentary and I heard that there was a, the first head, like, uh, what do you call the guy? The the guy who made the whiskey was actually a black guy and they bought it from a Lutheran. I don't know if that's true, but I like that. <laughs> but anyways, I, my question for you is this. When I first realized I, I liked to have everything's packaged tightly and I'm like, OK, the Bristol Sessions, this was the first country music. I could go with that. I could Google it and I could be like, OK, here's the 10 guys. But then reading you and, you know, I realized, oh man, there's a lot more to the story. So in in your priceless essay called History, The Great Man Missed, critiquing Ken Burns' country music, like about his um, documentary, you have a, an amazing selection called Before Bristol, 20 early country records, 1921 through 26, reminding the listener that 1927 is the Bristol Sessions. Can you give us maybe just like what are, and we'll play samples of them. What are maybe like, a, I don't know how many you could remember right now, right? But what are a few that pop out to you that were before Bristol? But part of that, could you also give us the, the much debated and not so easy to find because it's ultra nuanced, quote, quote, first country music album, whether it's Stoneman or Dalhar or Fiddlin' John Carson or whatever? Sure. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's debated some, I, you know, to be honest, it's it's not debated enough. I mean, that, that's why I'm delighted to speak with you about uh, about this topic. Uh, we last summer 2022 reached the centennial of what may very well have been the first country music recording. And I didn't hear much debate in the country music world about this. I, I didn't hear much made of that at all you know it would seem to me a centenary would be a big deal mm. but uh, so so I, i'll start with that one while there were recordings made earlier of traditional material such as fiddle tunes and ballads and whatnot by various artists it's quite clear to me and to others that i've spoken with over the years that the summertime 1922 kind of test recordings made by Eck Robertson Uh, should be considered probably the first country music recordings. Now, they weren't commercial in in the clinical sense, but they were recordings and we have them today to listen to and they're brilliant. And Eck Robertson is a 
famous uh, concert uh, fiddler, you know, competitive fiddler, um, and and his genius can be heard on those uh, recordings that he made in the summer of 1922. So to my mind, I, I can't debate it. That's the first country record right there. Mm. So we've just kind of nudged past the centenary of country music. Um, the first commercially released recording of, of music that can be called country would be the summer of 1923. And so that would be uh, Fiddle and John Carson. Now, Carson has gotten some attention over the years as being a pioneer of country music. He made two sides, 178 in Atlanta, not Bristol. So they're, they're you know, birthplace of country music. Atlanta doesn't usually get mentioned, but it has it can make a case as being the place where the, the first commercial record was made and released. And that was Ralph Peer, right? Yes, that's right. That was that was okay. Ralph Peer. So the continuity of Peer's work extend and Peer was with a different label at the time it, uh, in 23. It was the OK, okay. Records label before he became part of the Victor label later. Yeah. So that that in my mind, it has to be reckoned with as maybe the first commercial country. It, it was a local hit, too. I mean, it sold out in a weekend. I mean, on a small scale, it was popular. Um, and Fiddlin' John Carson was the perfect person to kind of be your pioneering country artist because of his persona, because of his um, distinctive, uh, uh, not only his distinctive fiddle style, but his distinctive voice, because he sang on one of the two sides. That's and he was like a, a, a minor or something, right? He was a laborer who was oh, also he was a laborer. A, there we go. Yeah. He's one of us. He's pretty good at drinking beer. Classic country guy. <laughs> he was definitely a, a person of, uh, you know, of um, working class background, you know, which is one of the arguments that's made to define country music over the years. It's the music of the working class. Uh, specifically, I guess some scholars will say the white working class. I think it's really working class because a lot of blacks love country music, of course. So we, don't, we needn't to limit, you know, how we define country music. So um, that would be my second record, uh, the Fiddlin' John Carson, two sides made in the summer of 23. And then by 24, things really get cooking. You, you get Ernest Stoneman's first big selling recording. Um, you get uh, Henry Witter emerging on the scene. Witter was not a great singer. Uh, Ernest Stoneman was, a, was a, quite a strong vocalist. But th those are two 
Virginia artists who are emerging in 1924 and uh, having huge success, particularly Stoneman. Um, Witter was more of an acquired taste. Now, Witter's happiest moment was later in the late 20s when he teamed up with G.B. Grayson and became a, a part of that duet. They were fabulous, but that's later 20s country. But Witter was around from 24, you know, some would say even earlier to when 23. But uh, anyway, he was early, early, um, as was uh, Ernest Stoneman. Um, Dollhart got involved by 24 and was really the best selling of that whole group in terms of pure numbers of records sold. I mean, uh, people have estimated that Dollhart did as many as four, 40, I'm sorry, 4,000 different releases in his career. Wow. Now, Dollhart was the one you had mentioned who was sort of a shapeshifter, right? He was like an opera guy and recorded, I don't know, recorded in New Jersey or something. Was 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 he the one who did, um, you know, the the train disaster song that kind of sounds like, it, you know what it sounds like exactly? And we'll play it right now. But sounds like um when i go to disneyland and i take my kids on the carousel i don't know what i'm hearing in there i don't know if it's yeah uh, an accordion and some other horns or something but anyways okay okay keep going please yeah 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 uh, dollhart was the guy who had uh, the hit with the uh, wreck of the old 97 which he had learned from as i understand it uh, uh ernest stoneman and, and henry witter henry witter specifically i think he had learned from uh, that ballad, which was a tr traditional disaster ballad, which has been attributed to specific authors, but it's a big controversy as far as who actually wrote it. But anyway, that's there's a legal debate, but it came it came from Southwest Virginia lore, and it was an actual event that occurred in the early part of the 20th century. But it became a huge smash for Vernon Dahlhardt, and it started his um, how can we say. Um, he, he had a cottage industry of recording train songs and disaster songs and other both, you know, ballads from tradition and ballads written often by his good friend, Carson Robeson, who was another great 20s era country uh, artist. 
Dahlhardt and Robeson teamed up and were a very powerhouse uh, duo or part of a team for a number of years, although Dahlhardt got all the credit because he was the powerful artist. And And Robeson ultimately wrote many songs which continue to be popular today, 100 years later. So, um, yeah, so, so this is what's brewing in, in, in the mid-1920s. A num number of other great artists start to emerge about that time. I, you should mention, for example, uh, Riley Puckett, you know, is a tremendously talented so guitarist good. and singer and a blind artist and... Uh, hey. Um, so he certainly uh, was a force to be reckoned with in that period. Um, you know, I could go on and mention other people. There, there were there were other talented Where artists. Where does Uncle Dave Macon fit in this? This picture? oh, absolutely. I'm so glad you mentioned him. Um, he was an older gentleman at the time who was, uh, you know, a, a local performer who suddenly started to gather a huge fan base because he appeared on the Grand Ole Opry. Uncle Dave Macon was already making records by that time, but uh, the Grand Ole Opry was uh, introduced in uh, late 1925 in Nashville as a commercial uh, vehicle for selling insurance policies. You know, so radio was being used to market uh, products and music was the medium of getting the products pitched to people and reaching audiences. Um, it was kind of an uncanny, um, shall we say, uh, you know, quid pro quo arrangement. And uh, so WSM Radio in Nashville launched that uh, Grand Ole Opry, We Shield Millions is what WSM stands for, an insurance logo. Um, but yeah, uh, Uncle Dave Macon became one of the stars of the early Grand Ole Opry, along with D. Ford Bailey, the great African-American uh, harmonica player. Yeah, another great star of the mid-1920s who 
you know, when you when you overlook everything that happened for Bristol, you leave out great work by people yeah. such as these. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think I read somewhere you said, maybe in some interview or something, I loved what you said. You said scholars should have the responsibility and the right to guide the public conversation about country music's origins. Uh, I love that because it tends to just shift to whatever documentary you watch and you buy that as truth. Um, I think you were even consulted at the beginning of uh, Ken Burns' documentary, if I'm correct. And they ask you, have you received flack about that pushback? I mean, do the, are people, are they viewing you as this keyboard warrior who has a blog and lives in his basement and doesn't know what he's talking about? Oh, I haven't. I have no clue what people are thinking about me. Um or much less what Ken Burns would think about this kind of position. Although, you know, my experience with the Ken Burns production is that it was mostly uh, created by a team that was doing the field research. And those were the only people I dealt with. Ken Burns, you know, wasn't around. Mm -hmm. It was his team. And in fact, it was a, a, a particular couple members of his team came by where the Tri-Cities and, and uh, Johnson City to our East Tennessee State University archives and to the Bristol Museum that you alluded to earlier. And, you know, one of my uh, roles when, by their request was to guide them from archive to archive, to introduce them to the archivist, to let them know what collections were there. So I was, I was right there at the beginning of the, oh, how can we say, the investigation effort. Um, you know, and it's one thing to be there and to be kind of, uh, you know, a, a tour guide. Um, but, it, you know, I, I had a lot of developed ideas and thoughts about the meaning and value of this material, which I don't think they were particularly concerned about hearing in all truth. And they had, I think they were invested into the myth of Bristol as it had predated yeah. many of us. Yeah. Because like we just mentioned earlier, the myth of Bristol was being formulated from really the Johnny Cash show in the early 1970s on through the 80s when Nolan Porterfield came up with the term or the slogan, Big Bang of Country Music, which he later retracted, by the way, I alluded to that earlier, but yes, he retracted it to me, said he had no way or no intention of being ahistorical when he came up with it. He was just mm -hmm. excited about hearing those records for the first time. He, he said he, he was... A, uh, you know, it was a slogan that uh, fit the moment, but didn't live past the moment and regretted that it had been co-opted for more chambers of commerce sort of yeah. efforts. Yeah. So, And at this place, I'll notate in, in the book that you edited with Charles Wolfe, um, Barry Mack said, perhaps a better name would be, or a better slogan would be, the birthplace of the country music explosion. And I thought, I thought, oh, interesting. Okay, that's interesting. But then I also thought, didn't you say some of these other guys sold a million records? The, this whole thing is very confusing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, th I think, well, I'll just be blunt. Uh, leading back to uh, the Burns project, um, I, I felt as if it went a little bit off the rails when the Burns film stopped being interested in hearing perspectives of a range of scholarly voices. They frankly followed one scholar throughout the, the program. Everybody knows who that scholar is. Mm -hmm. 
Um, he's a scholar I respect. So, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, calling out anybody. However, in multiplicity of voices is truth. Yeah. In especially famous in, ones, right? When you drag musicians in. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so the point was, is, you know, and, and to be honest, and anyone who knows Burns films knows this to be true. Burns was the master of getting multiple voices, multiple perspectives on topics, scholarly and popular and artist perspectives on on jazz and on on baseball and the other themes that he'd followed. He let him he, he let down the standard that he had himself had established yeah. yes. with, I think, the country music film. I I, I shudder to think that he didn't trust country music as sustaining multiple voices because to be honest it would have been a far more interesting narrative if there had been when uh, you different voices yeah i was gonna say when when you watched it the first time were you anticipating maybe they're gonna tell this other side of history or were you thinking well they're just gonna go with what everybody's been thinking the last however many years were you shocked when you watched it or did you kind of know ahead of time it's going to be one-sided I knew ahead of time because of the responses I was getting in my follow-up communications with the team, yeah, you know, yeah. it was pretty clear they had a fixed approach. And, you know, I even, you know, full disclosure, I even said, I think that's not the wisest approach for exploring country music's uh, complex history. And it was summarily ignored by them and that's okay. They, they, they controlled the project. Um, but you know, it, 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 they own it. It's, mm -hmm. you know, I no, shudder. Dr. Olson, when yeah. I read, when I read your article where, you know, sort of critiquing it, I mean, and you, and you weren't the only one, a, a bunch of other folks sort of were like, Hey, like this is, this is our wheelhouse. This is the, our sphere of influence and knowledge. So let us pass it along to you. And eventually they just politely said, Oh, Thanks for your email. You know, we'll send you we'll send you um, ed some edible arrangements, and that's sort of about it. And I didn't even realize until I read you about it. You're right. Most of the people they interviewed were um, musicians, and yes, a lot of them like are you know Marty Marty Stewart and Roseanne Cash. These people know you know they they know really well. But um, but it, there was like you said there. I think there was only that one actual historian. And I think his book maybe came out in like the seventies or sixties. And, and I read from you that since then, like, it's not that it was bad, um, bad research. There's just been a lot, lot more discovered since then. So anyways, I, I did want to ask you sort of as, as we close out, when you survey, um, you, you are an advocate. Um, you, you love, you know, you appreciate the Bristol sessions. You've written linear, no, um, liner notes on them. Oh, before I forget the good people at bear family records are allowing us to give away of a copy of, we shall all be reunited revisiting the Bristol sessions, 1927 to 1928. It's, um, it's a CD, it's a 44 page booklet written by our own uh, Ted Olson, where you sort of reassess based on recent scholarly research and discussion and where you where you hope to give the rest of the story. So this this interview is a teaser of that. If you want to dig down, that's a place you could go. But we are going to give one away. And it, and it comes to 26 songs. Um, there were more in the session, but that were um, 
the, those were selected and remastered in 2020. So to interview or to um, to try to win that, go ahead and get, leave this podcast a um, a rating. You can leave us a one if you want, but hopefully leave us five stars, take a screenshot of it, and then email me, jason at countrymusicpride.com, and we will choose one of you, and we will send that. We shall all be reunited, revisiting the Bristol sessions with 44 pages from Ted, from Ted Olson. Anyway, sorry, forgot about that. Um, and we do want to direct our, our listeners to Sepia Tone's podcast, which is really valuable. And we will link that in the show notes. But my question for you sort of as we close out, and then I'll give this to Benji after you respond here and we'll be done. But when you survey the history of, of, of country music, hillbilly, race, all this stuff, what do you see as the defining moments that were that were really important? Like obviously at Eck Roberts is, is one of those or what else were you like okay this these these are important things that that each deserve a chapter in in a book of the history of country music now are you asking about all 100 years or let's go hey let's go up um to let, let's just go to to um like the 30s or something oh sure um yeah well the invention of the uh of recorded sound in the 19th century would certainly be a watershed moment because country music is commercial music and it's recorded music. So it's not only recorded music, it's also live community music. But uh, so, you know, if we're talking about red letter dates, uh, you know, when, uh, when recorded sound was invented and as, uh, you know, different... Uh, Machines were perfected through those years, and then the formats kept changing, um, cylinders and discs and whatnot. But uh, so not to come, not to get too complicated. But one has to talk about the invention of the the first invention of the of uh, of the technology, because it introduced a concept of recording music, which introduced an idea of shaping that music, and having that music take on a particular effect and to be packageable and consistent. And so, so there's one. Um, oh gosh, there, there, there are a lot of smaller events and there's some major red letter events. And we've, we've talked about some of them. Um, certainly Eck Robertson and uh, Fiddlin' John Carson first recording. Um, those that trio of other artists having you know, best-selling uh, releases, um, the introduction of electronic miking, you know, would be take us into the mid twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where to go next? The is emergence. it radio? Is is radio the next big move? Like yes, the late nineteen and- late nineteen twenty-five. Um, the popularity of the Grand Ole Opry and at the same time, the popularity of other uh, radio barn dances, which were country music themed, you know, shows that were produced, of course, to sell products, but also to showcase talents. So that radio would be the next definite next one which would also be 25, same year as the electronic miking. Mm-hmm. Um, 
moving forward, you know, hey, let's give a tip of the hat to uh, Bristol and say the discovery of the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers. I think that's very important. Um, moving after that, um, what to say? Recording sales reached a crescendo in the hillbilly music world in uh, the late 20s. And so, the, you know, that's another important point is it was a booming industry and it was booming because of record sales by all these artists that we've mentioned and literally hundreds more. Mm -hmm. So there's a vast back catalog of artists who are selling. Only, only some of them were stars. And so that's the important point about Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family is that they were introducing this new concept of the self-sustained musical group that could write their own songs, record it, perform it, market it. You know, that's the genius I, I suspect of what uh, Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family introduced was that self-sustained star-making package that they introduced. Um, shortly thereafter, the depression, which would be a retrenchment of the industry in some ways, and the redefining of sounds. And so suddenly, you know, the emphasis uh, in, in the 20s of, you know, Appalachian string band music and, you know, a lot of, um, you know, some influence by Southern gospel and, you know, blues music and whatnot. Um, so a lot of that ended up becoming less marketable in, in the depression era um, when record sales plummeted. Um, but new styles of music or new sounds were marketable. We talked a little bit earlier about the brother duo sound and, you know, Western music became very popular. And it's, it's not a far cry from, you know, Roy Rogers and Gene Autry to the emergence of Ernest Tubb. You know, there's, a, there's kind of a connection yeah. there. Yeah. And of course, Jimmy Rogers also is at the background to to that transition. So, so classic country music of the 40s emerged out of the sounds that were marketed in the 1930s as saleable during the, those hard hit years of the depression. Um, not that the depression didn't have other musical sounds and styles. Of course they did. And, and some very powerful music was emerging in the 30s. You know think of somebody like a witty Guthrie, you know, kind of emerging out of the, 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 the background of country music in, in, in the thirties and whatnot, and moving forward with his sound and influence, which then of course translated to the folk revival. Right. Um, so country music was, was really always a large tent. And, and, and that's a beautiful thing about it, honestly. That's, that would be a great title for you to write a new book called A Large Tent. Are you that kind of, yeah? Uh, I do want to ask, you know, are you working on anything? But before I do that, we mentioned George Jones earlier. There is a, I don't know, there's a TV series come out, I think, on Paramount Plus called George and Tammy. I think later right. this year, sometimes, if you guys don't know. But one, are you working on anything? And I know you're busy teaching uh, classes uh, at the university, but anything in the works? Well, absolutely. Thank you for asking. Um, a, a mammoth project I've been working on for about six years now is getting close to completion, but 
you know, I, I say this out loud because it could be that somebody out there would want to help make this ultimately possible because we're, we have a multiple CD project without really a place for them because of, for financial reasons. But anyway, this is a collection of all the recordings released by the very first bluegrass label in America, which happened to be based where I'm living in East Tennessee. You know, we talked about Bristol, Johnson City, and you know, th those sessions. Well, there were more sessions later in the bluegrass vein as bluegrass emerged, thanks to, of course, uh, the father of bluegrass music, Bill Monroe, recording bluegrass music for the major label, Columbia. A little enterprising label uh, started up in East Tennessee in 46, in the immediate aftermath of uh, Bill Monroe's popularity, called Richer Tone Records. And for anyone who's, maybe it rings a bell for a few people, but uh, Richer Tone was the label that the Stanley Brothers got started mm -hmm. on. So um, anyway, we're trying to release all those early awesome. uh, Appalachian bluegrass recordings that have never been collected before. Many of them are extremely rare. We have them all collected and and, uh, you know, we've given them curation and we have the photos. We have, you know, the family's blessing to do this project. So wow. anyway, that's awaiting, I guess, a little bit of uh, fun support, you know. So mm -hmm. looking for somebody who cares about our America's music heritage, bluegrass and others, you know, genres that were popular in the late 40s when this label was started. The first label, by the way, based in East Tennessee, um, we hope to put that box set out uh, at some point. So that's a that's an important project that I, I think will change people's appreciation of the roots of bluegrass because yeah. it will show where the Stanley Brothers came from, from a from a regional context. It'll show that Bill Monroe's style was based on a, a musical kind of cultural sound in East Tennessee and in Appalachia that percolated its way westward into Western Kentucky, where he lived. I mean, in other words, yeah, no one's trying to take away the mantle of inventing bluegrass from Bill Monroe. We're just trying to put it into a, a broader context. Mm -hmm. So good. Well, we'll have to have to have you back on the show for that one. And then this time last year, you released a, a great Doc Watson project. So we want to have folks google that check it out but man it, it's such an honor for you joining us on our very first episode we got a a bunch of good stuff coming up on the history of the banjo we um another one we're talking with don flemens we're talking with um uh folks about the carter family and how they went down to mexico and had a radio uh did some radio work there and just um and the goat gland doctor so a lot of good stuff in the future uh, we've been talking with Dr. De Ted Olson. Brother, thank you very much. We really appreciate your time and have a good one. Thank, well, you. thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's, it's a real pleasure to speak with both of you. This is the Reverend Magnus, and I just want to say thanks again for listening to the Good Neighbor Get Together. We wouldn't be good neighbors if we didn't share some good news with y'all. So we'd like to end our podcast with a little bit of hope that you can tuck into your heart. One of the songs that we played on this episode from the Bristol Sessions was sung by the Alcoa Quartet. That song, Remember Me, O Mighty One, was a prayer to God that he would remember them as they made their way through the struggles of life. 
But in the last line, they also ask God to remember them when they die. Here's what they sing. When weight of sin oppresses, when dark despair distresses, all through the life that's mortal, and when I pass death's portal, remember me, Almighty One, remember me, Almighty One. Well, God has remembered us because he gave us his only son, Jesus, to live and die for us. But the story doesn't just end there. God raised Jesus from the dead, and he reigns as king over all, with plans to return one day and judge the world. You can be safe on the day of judgment if you trust in Jesus. You see, God loves you whether you feel it or believe it. He is the only one that can save you when you pass through death's portal. And when you do, if you trust in him, he'll greet you with a warm embrace on the other side. Wouldn't it be great if you belonged to a God like that? I think so. Just cry out to him. He'll listen. And he'll forgive you of all your sins, too. Can you believe that? It just seems too good to be true. But it really is. Remember, God loves you. We hope you believe that. Thanks for listening, friends. Go be a good neighbor to somebody today. Happy trails.